As I said this morning earlier, it is an absolute pleasure to be here, and we have been looking forward to this for a very long time. Uh, I, I love talking about the work that we are headed for, but what I love to do even more is open God's word and proclaim the truth to you. So uh, may God bless our time together. It is a privilege to open God's word together, and may he encourage our hearts. Let's pray briefly before we get into the sermon. Our Father, glorify yourself and minister to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about uh, life recently, and uh, particularly about how it's, at least at times, easy to get bogged down and busy so that we neglect to remember important spiritual truths. I don't know if you've ever felt that. I've felt that. And maybe it's just a stage of life we're in right now with three young girls. But my guess is that we've all felt that. Life kind of has a way of, of creeping up and clouding out and narrowing in and closing around us to make us feel as if life today is the most important thing or, or worse, the only thing. And I have a, a, an analogy you may find strange, but uh, hopefully, it, hopefully it fits. I like it. This, this idea kind of reminds me of snorkeling. Now, I don't know if you've ever been snorkeling. I'm not really uh, a big water sports guy. I've never, the only snorkeling I've done is like uh, with one of those high-tech Walmart goggles in Lake Michigan. Uh, probably more like scrounging would be the term, not snorkeling. But um, even though I'm not a pro snorkeler, I, I think that that idea of snorkeling kind of um, puts something into perspective for us. A snorkeler puts on his gear, he jumps into an environment that's not really meant for him. That's why he needs those goggles and the anti-fog spray and the, the snorkel itself and then the fins. And then a snorkeler spends prolonged time underwater and only comes up for air when absolutely necessary, right? And I think that's something of an image of how we sometimes live. Every morning we dive into the water of life and only come up for air when our lungs burn or when we're desperate. We're like the snorkeler who gets so busy with life under the water that he forgets where he truly belongs, up here on dry ground. And I think uh, we can easily get that way when it comes to remembering the glorious future that awaits believers, our glorious future. It seems far away at times. It seems hard to fathom. Hard to imagine. It's so much less tangible than things that we can touch and see and feel. And frankly, I think it's just hard to live in light of our glorious hope and the hope that we have been talking about this, this whole morning that is so ministered to my soul already is the glorious hope of our future resurrection as believers. Look around at your brothers and sisters here in this room. Someday we will gloriously and powerfully and permanently be raised from the dead. But we are up against a lot to live in light of that, as I mentioned. For one, I think it's difficult because our culture, many in our culture, would deny everything except those things that can be verified by science or repeated observation and replication. And if we can't do that consistently, then I won't believe it. Or at least that's what I say. I won't believe it. And that mindset, I think, can subtly slip into how we process the world, too. Because there is certainly no denying that the physical and tangible here, the things we can taste and see and smell, those things have a powerful influence on us. Those are the things we can be certain about. 
is the, the idea that we slip into. But tell me that I'll be raised from the dead, and I start to get uneasy, because it implies first me dying, and I don't want to think about that. What happens after death is the realm of pure faith. Pure faith. And so in our heart of hearts, we live in this kind of world, in our heart of hearts we can begin to lack confidence about our future resurrection. And that's to say nothing of how death can be frightening to people, so why think about it? And all this is compounded for us, especially if we consider ourselves young. There's a spectrum of those who consider themselves young, I understand that. Because young people kind of tend to view the future resurrection as something that hangs out there to affect a future me, an older me. The resurrection is a great truth, sure, but I've got things I've got to do now. Like, my life is busy. It's hard to think about how I've got lunch to eat next and kids to get down for naps and bills to pay and futures to plan and fears to face and problems to navigate and uncertainties to swallow and then it's Monday and we do it all over again. And that's life. It's often very distracting, and if we're not careful, we can forget important spiritual realities. Out of sight, out of mind is sometimes how these things go. And if our resurrection is out of mind, then we will lose a key motivation for sacrificial Christian ministry. That is our main point. This morning, if you are are a note-taker, looks like many of you are, Resurrection certainty motivates sacrificial ministry. You see it there. When I first studied this passage, one of the things that surprised me about it is how God himself wants us to be 100% absolutely certain that we will rise from the dead as believers. And then he wants us to know how that future resurrection should affect our lives today, how it should affect our lives Monday, should affect our lives at lunch today. So what I want to do this morning is remind you of something you already know. And you already know it because we've already talked about it a lot this morning. But you know it as well because you're well taught. And I'm praying that the Spirit will cause your heart to well up with faith at truth you already know and cause you to resonate with this and that your faith would well up and your assurance would well up and you would leave here encouraged and motivated to go and work for the Lord. That's my prayer this morning. So I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And what I'm going to do this morning, because we're kind of just diving into a chapter in a book that, to my knowledge, you're not in the middle of or studying right now. We're going to try, I'm going to try to get you up to speed with the overall argument of 1 Corinthians 15. And then we're going to focus on verses 20 to 28 in order to be convinced of the certainty of our resurrection. So I'll say this, um, we probably won't be able to answer every question that comes up, but we'll make sure that the main point is clear, and then we'll have a few points of application, and then, and then we'll be done. So let's try to orient ourselves to 1 Corinthians as a whole. When you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you realize pretty quickly that Paul had a lot of issues that he wanted to address with this church. And often there was an issue or two in the church that occasioned a specific chapter that Paul wrote. So if you, look, if you look at chapter 3 and you just scan it, or if you look at your, your Bible's headings, you might get a hint as to what he's talking about in that chapter or what caused it. Chapter 3, there are divisions and jealousy in the church at Corinth. So some say, I follow Paul, and another say, I follow Apollos. And so Paul writes about that. In chapter 5, you have sexual immorality in the church. 
A man has his father's wife. So Paul writes about that. Chapter 6, there are lawsuits among believers. And Paul is like, why? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? And so he talks about that in chapter 6. Chapter 7, he discusses issues of sexual ethics in singleness and in, for married couples. Chapter 10, he talks about idolatry. Chapter 11, he, he talks about how they were perverting the Lord's Supper. And he's addressing these issues throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And then when he gets to 1 Corinthians 15, the question is what caused him to write this chapter? Well, the whole chapter arises because people were saying that there is no resurrection. Look at what uh, verse 12 says of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Paul writes this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now a question you might have is, whose resurrection are they denying? Are they like denying the resurrection of Jesus? Or are they denying resurrections in general, which would be more like the believer's resurrection? I want to draw your attention to verses 3 through 5 here. And what you see in those verses is an, an early summary of the gospel. Let's just read it together. An early summary of the gospel. 1 Corinthians fifteen three. For I delivered to you uh, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to, to the twelve, as a living man. He rose from the dead. So he's pointing to this, and the resurrection of Jesus is a critical truth that you must believe in order to be a Christian. Otherwise, they would not be brothers. And so I, what I'm going to argue is, I think the Corinthians believed in the resurrection of Jesus. He calls them brothers in verse 1, and then uh, in verse 11, he says that they believed. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The first 11 verses of this chapter, I think, is Paul reminding them of the common ground they're on, and then going to get to, here's an implication of that common ground, because some of you are denying the resurrection, and that's a problem, because Jesus himself rose. And then he, he goes forward on that. I think the problem was that they denied the future resurrection of believers and they didn't understand all the implications of holding to a belief like that. They didn't realize the connection between the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which you have to believe to be a Christian, and their own bodily resurrection, which they thought they could deny. And I think that's Paul's argument in verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, and we might see there, think there generally, if that's what you're saying, if there's no resurrection of the dead generally, then not even Christ has been raised. That's his argument. And they had no idea why it was so important to God that believers have certainty of their own resurrection with glorious new bodies. So Paul's going to spend the bulk of this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 telling Christians that they will be raised and then answering questions or objections to that as he goes. Um, look at verses 13 to 19. Paul says, okay, you say there's no resurrection of believers. Let's say you're right. Look what happens when we start to pull that thread that Jesus has not been resurrected from the dead. When you start to pull that thread, the whole thing unravels. And the first thing to go is the most important thing of all, the resurrection of Jesus himself in verse 13. And if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, there are several significant implications of that. Your, uh, our preaching is empty 
We preach a risen Christ. If he didn't raise, then our preaching is empty. Our faith is also empty. And we're actually false witnesses of God because we're saying he did something that he didn't do. Now, that's a big problem. Verse 15. Also, our faith is futile. Verse 17. We're still in our sins. Verse 17. And then believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our family members, those who have died in Christ, they have already perished. They're gone. We will never see them again. And then in verse 19, he closes it out with this, all these hypotheticals. If this is not true, if, if our hope is only in this life, then we are the most pitiable wretches on planet Earth. Verse 19. Now, if you're here this morning and you're kind of an interested observer or you're someone who's kind of exploring Christianity, this is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important to us. Because so many critical pieces of our faith are centered around the fact that Jesus did not stay in the grave dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we lose everything. And we might as well pack up now, go home, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. To be a Christian, you must believe that a man rose from the dead. Now we could summarize what Paul's saying in these arguments this way. If you deny our, our resurrection, then you implicitly deny the resurrection of Jesus because they're connected. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, then you lose everything. Verses 20 to 28, I think Paul's arguing here, your resurrection is certain, and here's why. We're going to get to that in a minute. But if you look at verse 35... Just to continue the argument, the flow of the argument of this chapter. Verse 35, Paul imagines someone saying, All right, so believers will be resurrected, but how will they be raised? And with what kind of body will they have? And then he answers those questions in the verses that follow. Verse 42, it will be incorruptible and glorious. Verse 43, and powerful. And then finally in verse 51 through 53, let's read that together. Paul tells them directly, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We, believers, shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Amen. The error in their doctrine is going to benefit us greatly in the end. Because Paul, in his defense of the resurrection, he argues very strongly that believers will certainly be raised. And when we are certain of our resurrection, this chapter will go on to imply then that only then will we live like we are called to live. So let's go back to 20 to 28 and we'll dig into those verses to understand on what basis can we be sure of our resurrection? Here's our first point. Our resurrection is certain because Jesus rose from the dead. We'll see that from verses 20 to 23. Our resurrection is certain because Jesus rose from the dead. Let's read verse 20 together. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Do you notice what's missing that was in a lot of the verses previously? The word if. The word if is not there. We're done with hypotheticals, and that's something that I love. I love to see that. We're done with hypotheticals. This is reality. Christ has been raised from the dead. And verse 20 is where Paul is going to make it very clear 
that his resurrection is inextricably tied to our resurrection. His made ours inevitable. And he says this using the metaphor of first fruits. Now, I don't know if some of you are farmers here. It looks like there was a, a lot of land for that around here. We do have a lot of farms in Michigan. I didn't grow up on one, though. For what it's worth, my wife's uh, dad's side of the family has a farm in Ohio, so that may, may uh, override some of the Michigan uh, accents and influence you're getting from the pulpit today. But there's a little bit of Ohio in my family, so. But I'm not much of a farmer. But I think this picture here of, the, of a first fruits is clear enough. I think it's clear enough. Imagine planting a crop, and let's say you plant corn because corn is delicious, and even if it's not good for eating, you might be able to get a government subsidy or something. So you, you plant your corn, and as you look at your field, all of the corn is getting taller at a similar rate, and everything is looking great. And one day you wake up, and you check the field, and there's this one section of the field that is just perfect. It's ready for the harvest. And so you go out with your family, and you pluck a dozen or so ears you bring them home and you, you cook them your favorite way and you enjoy the corn from your field that night. You harvest some of the first fruits of your crop. Now, when you go to bed that night, you have something of a guarantee that the rest of the harvest is coming. It's only a matter of time because you've already tasted the first fruits so what does that mean for us if Christ is the first fruits of, uh, of the resurrection? I think if you were to ask God something like this, Lord, how do I know that death is not the end for me? How do I know? I can't verify that with science. How do I know? Well, what could he say? He could say, come and see the empty tomb of Jesus. As sure as Jesus is not here, so is it sure that you will not remain in the grave. Just as I raised him, so will I raise you. The first fruits are already in. The full harvest is coming, and it's only a matter of time. Christ, the first fruits, then those who belong to Christ, our passage says. So embedded in the gospel, embedded in the resurrection of Jesus, is our own future resurrection. Jesus secured it, and God guarantees it. Now, we'll keep reading here, verses 21 and 23. Paul goes on and says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We know, probably from good teaching here, that Adam brought sin into the human race, and as a result, he brought death to all. And now, for every human being who's ever lived or whoever will live or is alive today, death hangs over them as a certainty unless Jesus comes. And for those who have already died, they have experienced this by experience. And the people of the past, as it's sometimes hard to think, they weren't actually that much different than you and me. We look at pictures of people from the past and it's, a, it's often black and white and two-dimensional and we don't realize that these people loved and cried and laughed just like all of us. Some of them, I'm sure, thought death would never come and yet from the perspective of this side of history, we can look and see that death has taken them, both believers and unbelievers alike. And death is a certainty for all of us coming just as 
uh, all in Adam die, Paul says. And what we need to come to grips with and face and not distract ourselves from is the fact that our health or our money or our youth or our good health care here, none of these is a good guarantee even of your next breath. And that's not fear-mongering or fear tactics. That's just reality of life in the fallen world. As in Adam, all die. Uh, You may remember that saying from uh, Ben Franklin, where he said, in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, we sometimes chuckle at the fact that taxes are on there because it does seem, man, taxes are certain no matter what. But he has a point, I think, because death is certain. And when you stare that reality in the face, what do you do? What do you do with the certainty of death? Do you hear his voice? In that moment, believer, do you hear his voice? He's saying at the end of verse 22, come and see the empty tomb. All those in Christ shall be made alive. Our resurrection is certain because Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not keep its grip on Jesus, and neither will it be able to hold us. We will, as certain as the sun will rise tomorrow, whether or not we see it because of the clouds, we will be raised from the dead with bodies that are new and glorious and powerful and incorruptible and specifically designed for an eternity with God forever, and yet will somehow still be us. It's amazing what is coming. We celebrate our risen Savior, and one day he will raise us. This is our great and glorious hope as Believers, followers of Christ. I do feel the need to warn and just to, to mention this because I don't know your hearts. I don't know who's here. That if you are not united by faith in Christ, which is what Paul says, guarantees your resurrection, also in those in Christ shall be made alive. If you're not in Christ, united to him by faith, then this, this hope of a future glorious resurrection does not apply to you. That is a tragedy. It really is. The only thing that awaits someone who's not in Christ is the hopelessness of dying in your sin. But it doesn't have to be that way. We have, we have sung together, we have read scripture together, that it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus took your sin on himself and paid the penalty in full, and then he died. And then he rose on the third day in victory, and you can be forgiven by believing this message and putting your trust in him to save you. You have the good gift of oxygen in your lungs now. I urge you to trust Christ and to be saved while you can. For those of us who are in Christ already, who have put our faith in him, we can be sure of our resurrection because he himself rose. Now, in verse 23, you see something of an order to this. Christ the firstfruits has already been raised. And we have to wait until Jesus returns. And in this time of waiting, we need faith to believe. Now, that was our first number one cause for certainty. Here's our second point this morning. Our resurrection is certain because without it, God's final enemy gets the last laugh. Verses 24 to 26. Let's, let's go ahead and read those. Uh, 24 to 26 Paul goes on, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We talked a little bit about death. I think it was necessary to talk about resurrection. But I will, I will say this. There's nothing more permanent in life than death. That's what it feels like. As a pastor, I've been to a lot more funerals than I ever would have been before. They're hard. Death at times, it feels like at times, gets the last laugh, doesn't it? When we experience the death of a loved one, it feels like death is getting the last laugh, and it's a painful experience. It can be faith-shaking, but in, this, in these verses, Paul gives us a kind of order of events of what's to come, and it's, it's so awesome. He pictures a time when Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father in total victory over everything, and a victory that only comes after he defeats every last one of his enemies. And what is the last enemy to be defeated? Verse 26 tells us death. The last enemy to be defeated is death. The resurrection was the beginning of the end for death. The end, end of death, when death finally dies a death of its own, is when all those who belong to Christ are raised from the dead. Verse 24 describes this culmination of God's work in creation, where the Son hands the kingdom back to the Father after destroying all rule and authority and power that stood against him. And we know that Satan, the liar and murderer from the beginning, has been scheming against God from the beginning. Picture it. Remember it all. From the tears of Eve and the shame of Adam to the murder of Abel to the betrayal of Judas and the killing of Jesus. From the beginning to end, Satan has stood against God. All the death, all the agony, all the illness, everything wrong with the world, all the pain and the tears. But here in a moment, verse 24 shows us the glorious end. Jesus delivering the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. And do you know what Jesus must do before that great moment? What must Jesus do before that great moment? He must raise you from the dead. That's what he said. Look at verse 23. Christ the firstfruits, then those who are coming, who belong to Christ, and then comes the end. The glorious end only comes after you have been raised. You will not miss out. You will not be remain in the grave. You will be a part of that because you will be raised from the dead. And we know that Jesus is not one to take alternative paths to glorious ends. He's not one to do that. You remember the temptation in the wilderness. Fall down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan. He's already dealt with the temptation of, doing a of accomplishing a glorious end by an alternative means. So he will not fail to raise you from the dead. It's part of the plan. It's part of the plan to defeat every last one of his enemies. So let me make this as clear as I can. The resurrection of Jesus set in motion a chain of events that results in him defeating every one of his enemies. And the only way that he defeats his enemies is if you are raised from the dead. So the only way you will not be raised from the dead is if God is not powerful enough to defeat his enemies. And we know he is powerful enough to defeat his enemies. I assure you from scripture that God will get the last laugh over his enemies. And it, I think, will be a joyful laugh when he raises his children from the dead, utterly obliterating Satan's schemes once and for all and permanently mending the rift that formed in creation because of sin. Death will no longer cause us any fear 
It will no longer bring us any pain. It will no longer hang over us as an inevitable. We will no longer have to wonder what it will be like or when it might strike. We will never mourn again because death will be dead. It's the last enemy. That day is coming. And the only way it doesn't come is if God lied or if God failed or if he misspoke or if he's too weak or if he forgot or if he got carried away with his own plans. No, that is not our God. You will be raised. And when that day happens, I think we will sing something like what we read in verses 54 and 55. When the imperishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is a defeated enemy and we taunt it. We look at its face and say, you're nothing. You have nothing over us anymore because Christ has raised us from the dead and he's already shown it that he can do it because he did it already himself. So thanks be to God for this wonderful assurance that we too will be raised. Our resurrection is certain because without it, God's final enemy will get the last laugh. Our third and final point before some application is this that our resurrection is certain because without it, God's sovereign rule is not, is not established. Look at verses 27 to 28. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, there are certainly some, some things we could spend some time talking about there, some confusing things, trying to figure out who is, who's doing what. But the main point is clear at the end of the verse, 28. The end goal of all of this is that God will be all in all. That's his aim in the end. What's this, what this means is that when all of his enemies are defeated, God will be, as one man put it, supreme in every quarter and in every way. Today, Satan still roams. Believers still die. And yes, God is sovereign over that. But there's a day coming when God will assert his sovereignty over his enemies by destroying and defeating them, every one of them, and by restoring all things to the way that they should be. I want to read you what that will be like from the book of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are, what? Trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And so we will forever be with the Lord. See, your future resurrection 
is about God establishing his sovereign rule over all things. So as we said before, the only way you will not be resurrected is if God is incapable of ruling over all things. And I think that's one of the reasons Paul gives a whole chapter to this, because if you deny the resurrection of believers, you lose some very significant things. God's sovereign rule, his defeat of his enemies, the resurrection of Christ even. And that's to say nothing of the hopelessness and the lawlessness that it would bring to us personally. Now, we're going to move to, towards application here. And I want to point out that the certainty of our resurrection is an important motivation for sacrificial Christian ministry. Because when you know deep down in your soul that this life is not all that there is, it frees you to live like it. It frees you to take costs and to miss out and to lose things and to take risks and and even to suffer and to work hard, toiling for the Lord with everything you have until you have until you give your last breath. The only way you can do those things is if you are convinced deeply that this life is not all that there is and that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. So I want to press into that a little bit and I want to do that by asking you to think about this question. Do you live in the certainty of your resurrection? Do you live Monday to Sunday in the certainty of your resurrection? Now, I I don't know, like I said before, I don't know everyone here super well. I'm not sure if anyone here would deny the resurrection of believers, at least uh, intellectually. But our resurrection, as I said, is something that often resides just too far in the distant future, that future that affects another older me. It almost seems like we're just so prone to thinking about how old we are and then calculating how much time we have left and going, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm like in my 30s. I'll probably live till 70 because stats say that, statistics. And then we just kind of bank on that and we just kind of can think about things later. Well, statistics don't rule the universe. God does. So we don't really know. Uh, We don't really realize, too, that it's more than just thinking, being certain of our resurrection. But when we don't live with the end in mind, we're prone to living not how we should today. By pushing the end out of our minds, we end up living as if this life is all that there is, which I think gives sin a hunting license for our souls. When you get your eyes off your future hope, you invite the news to bring you fear or someone's thoughtless comment to sprout bitterness in your heart or for discouragement to hinder your ministry, or for darkness to rob you of your joy, or for the love of things and the love of money to invade your heart and find a home, or for the love of man's approval to dethrone the love of God, and for countless other sins to manifest. Just look at the book of 1 Corinthians, and you'll see what what happens when people don't believe in their own resurrection. It's a mess. And the only real options that I see are to either live in light of our future hope, or live as if this life is all that there is. Now, as I mentioned, I don't, I don't know if any would deny the truth of our resurrection intellectually, but sometimes the way we live can reveal a lack of faith that we will gloriously and bodily raise from the dead someday. So let me ask you this for your own reflection. Would, would your life look differently if you lived every day convinced of your own resurrection and the resurrection of every other believer? Would your life look any differently? And if so, how? Put your finger on the how. Think about that. How would it change the way you view death, your own death and the death of your loved ones? How would it change the way you handle hardships 
in life? How would it affect your battle with sin? How would it change the daily decisions you make? How would it affect your joy to know that this life is not all that there is? Now, I have a pretty good idea as to how that would look. Not of my own making, but because Paul, at the very end of this chapter, pretty much tells us in verse 58. I invite you to look at that. This is where I got the idea from this verse that our, the certainty of our resurrection leads to sacrificial ministry. Because Paul, at the end of this chapter, he starts verse 58 with therefore, and then 16.1, he moves on to a different subject. So he's, he's kind of concluding his discussion on the resurrection of believers, and he says this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What a wonderful promise. As we, as we just uh, toil through life and work for Christ and we endure cost and we sweat spiritual sweat and we go, man, what is going on here? And this verse says, your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Remember that. That's what he wants you to remember as, as he concludes this chapter is to not let your labor be considered vain as a believer. So we would be the kinds of people who are steadfast and immovable. Just those pe- people whose confidence and hope uh, are not staggered or, sh- or moved away from where they should be, regardless of the circumstance. We would solidly root ourselves in the future hope we have. And when we do that, it would strip the power of circumstances to, to just beat you down and stagger your faith and cause you to lose any kind of uh, hope of enduring to the end. It is no surprise that hard circumstances are either here or coming to kind of test our faith. But to be steadfast and immovable would be to look at those situations and say, God, I don't, I don't understand everything that's happening or why this is happening, but I know that this life is not all that there is. I know deep down this life is not all that there is. And I know that the next life will be better and that you will raise me from the dead to new and everlasting life. So I will not forsake or abandon you. I'm going to toil. I'm going to work. I'm going to sweat. for the work of the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. And when those doubts and hardships hit, look at the empty tomb and imagine that it's yours. Also empty. Put your eyes on the future hope and don't let anything rob you of that. That is our privilege in Christ by grace. We could never earn that. It's been handed to us as a gift. So cherish it. Hold on to it. Believe it. And then abound in the work of the Lord. Always, always abound in the work of the Lord. And as we labor, we know that whatever cost we endure, whatever, whatever consequences that happen from us laboring for the Lord, we know that it's not in vain. It's worth it. That's the conclusion of the matter. Because of our resurrection, we never have to wonder whether it's worth it. God has given us a job to do, and our job is to take our part in the Great Commission at whatever cost. And you can do that with the confidence that death does not get the last laugh. Even if you die before your kids death does not get the last laugh no because the first fruits have already been brought in it's only a matter of time so take your role in the great commission and put all of your energy into it all of your life into it if god is going to reign supreme then he will raise you from the dead so we don't do not need to fear what man can do and when life gets hard or we want to quit or go home when the bottom drops out on our world What is going to keep us abounding in the work of the Lord? What will keep us stable and steadfast? The fact that this life is not all that there is and that we will be raised. 
And that truth will encourage us to press on, to continue abounding in the work that God has given us. We need to stake our lives on this passage. Let, us, let it sink deep into our hearts and then turn around and go, so let's get down to work for the Lord. And yes, sometimes we'll struggle. We may hear that poisonous thought, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? And we'll remember verse 58, and our hearts will get courage and our faith will well up and we will say, yes, yes, it is worth it. Resurrection certainty motivates sacrificial ministry. Let's pray and just thank the Lord for the work that he has done to give us this great and glorious hope. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we bless your name and we, we come with hearts of gratitude for what you have done by your grace, that you would look on us and have compassion and grant us the gift of faith that we would turn from our sin and embrace you, embrace Christ and his work and be saved and forgiven and cleansed and adopted and granted a hope that is stored up for us in heaven, undefiled, imperishable, something that cannot be touched by the rust or moths and certain. Thank you. Amen.